Did you guys enjoy that uh, choir Christmas video? That was great, right? And I know so, yeah, we can clap for that. Um, I know so many of you online watching love that. I, I want to point out uh, Tim Holly and Beth Johnson. They, uh, they were the, the brain source and the effort, the labor behind that. That would not have happened. Um, had they not gone about doing that, and, and I want to thank those of you that were able to cut away, come up here and participate. So, and just to say to everyone in here and to those of you watching online, before I get 100 emails, we will make that video available, right? We will put it out everywhere on our website, YouTube, Vimeo. I don't really know if we can do all that, but I just say that. And then after the service, I find Beth during the week and say, hey, can we really do that? Can we put that everywhere? So, uh, but we will make it available. We will make it available. It will definitely be on the website and various other places. So, um, hey, uh, one of the things that we saw through the Kingdom series that was hard to miss if you were attentive and thoughtful is the generous nature of God. God is a generous, an endlessly generous God. We saw time and again, we as his people failing and living in disobedience, and falling away from the covenant commitments we're called to and that we'd made, and God stepping in and redeeming and saving and delivering. We saw ourselves in need time and time again. And God, in his sovereign goodness and generosity, providing for us again and again and again. God is a generous God who is creating in us a generous people. And he intends us to be that kind of people. It's one of the primary ways, our generosity, that we witness to the glory of God, the supremacy of Christ, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. It's in the way that it transforms completely our value system. And so with Christmas less than a week away, we're going to talk about money and giving this morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I actually, and, and I'll say a little bit more about this in a minute, but I actually love talking about this. I have peers that this terrifies. They'll go years without doing it. Um, and I constantly needle them about that, uh, right? Be because stewardship is discipleship. What we do with our money says a tremendous amount about where our heart is. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at that in just a minute in Matthew chapter 6. Now, I will tell you this. The fact that we're voting on the annual budget right after this is a total coincidence. It really is. I know some of you will never believe that because some people still believe Elvis is alive. But, but this was planned weeks ago, uh, and that decision to punt from last week was just made last week. So that's coincidental. But let's jump in and look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to move around in Scripture a bit this morning. But what Jesus says about giving, the connection that he makes between our money and our hearts is the center of where I hope we can drop anchor this morning and hold uh, what he says in our minds. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching, teaching the most single most famous uh, message that's ever been given in human history. It's been uh, studied and, and attempted to be lived out and broken down and analyzed more than any single message given by any other human being. And in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where malls and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now look down at verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, you would think that Jesus is about to say you cannot serve both God and Satan, or both God and evil, or both God and unrighteousness, or something along those lines. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says you cannot serve both God and money. It's a very interesting statement because the people that Jesus was talking to had very, very, very little money. The vast majority were extremely poor. And it causes the question to bubble up. Why does Jesus feel the need to say that to poor listeners in first century Galilee living under the subjugation of the Roman Empire? Well, he says it because he knows the massive temptation that money represents for the human heart. Who of us in here, if we were forced to be honest, wouldn't say that we struggle and have struggled to one degree or another with this issue of money, of how we spend, of how much we make, of how much we have, of the promise that money holds out for us, of what it can provide and what it can do for us. Jesus feels the need to say this because he knows that God has no greater competition for the affections of your heart than your money. God has no greater competition for the affections of your heart than your money. He has no greater competition for the affections of my heart than my money. That's why it's uncomfortable for so many for money to be talked about in church. Uh, COVID kind of has uh, a different effect on church right now, but in a given season, a given year right now, uh, we hopefully would normally have a number of guests here. And I'll hear this sometimes, man, every time I come to church, you talk about money. I just say come more often than once or twice a year, right? We didn't talk about money last week, and we won't be talking about money in a couple of weeks. So if you happen to drop in twice a year, you might land on a money message. That's on you, not on us, right? I'll tell you a little secret. I'm not paid by commission. Right? So uh, dive in a little deeper. But I will also say, if we're going to preach the gospel, if we're going to preach Jesus, you're going to run into texts and entire passages that are loaded with teaching that center on material possessions and money. Around 30% of the entire body of Jesus' teaching deals with this reality. Some 2,000, give or take, verses in Scripture deal with this it's a big big deal and we know it that's why it makes us uncomfortable we know it's a big big deal what jesus is saying if you look back at verse 21 where your treasure is there your heart will be also what jesus is saying is that money follows our hearts and our hearts follow our money right there may be something you don't care a whole lot about until you start giving to it and then you get excited about it. Then you care. Then you get passionate. 
what we give to and where we direct our money both reveals our relationship with God more directly than probably anything else tangibly that we do. And it also more directs, directs our relationship with God probably more than anything else tangibly that we do. And I'll just say this, biblically faithful giving is always about what God wants for you, not what he wants from you. Biblically faithful giving is always about what God wants for you, not what he wants from you. If he can create everything ex nihilo out of nothing, he doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from me. But he wants things for us as his children that we simply can't walk in and experience as long as we're clutching on to all the resources that God allows to pass into our lives or as long as we're giving some but we're maintaining our own ideas and own thoughts about how and why and when we're going to give. My excitement about this teaching on this has grown over the years because I've seen more life change directly connected to what people did with their money and giving and taking giving challenges and learning to decide to trust God in this area of their life than anything else I've seen in ministry. So it excites me. The idea, the idea of a fully resourced church fires me up. A fully resourced church, as I use that phrase, is a church where all of its members are giving at a minimum of a biblically faithful level, which we'll talk about in just a second. It's hard to imagine what a church like that could do. We'd have to have a team meet every month to decide where to direct the excess resources here. If only our members gave at that level. It's an amazing thing, but I've watched people change, and I've watched marriages be reconciled as both spouses decided to try to live financially faithful lives before God and honor God with their finances. I've seen people come to faith by accepting tithe challenges who were exploring the reality of God and realize, man, God says, test me here. I'm going to test you. I'm not even sure you're real. But there's such a deep connection between what we do with our money and our spiritual lives and the working of God in our hearts. Now, luckily for us, God gives some clear direction, a clear starting point for where we give. It's the biblical principle of the tithe. And most of you have heard that word this morning. Most of you have heard about tithing and some of you are like, oh, here we go. Yes, here we go. Because it's a familiar word that's widely misunderstood and even less practiced in the church. Usually tithing is talked about as anything I give to the church. And that's simply incorrect. So what I want us to do is to walk through a little bit of what tithing actually is, how we do it, make a few observations from that well-known-ish passage in Malachi 3, and give a couple of challenges toward the end of this morning. The, the biblical tithe is what Randy Alcorn in his remarkable book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, calls the training wheels of giving. The training wheels of giving. It is this place that it is clear throughout Scripture when you understand holistically what God teaches us about money. It's very clear that, that this concept of the biblical tithe and of tithing is, is where God intends us to start as we're understanding his faithfulness to us. It's the training wheels of giving. It's something anyone can figure out 
and do. Let's look back while keeping Jesus' statement about, while keeping Jesus' statement about the connection between giving and our hearts at the forefront of our mind. Flip back just a few pages if you've got your Bible open to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Now, Malachi is the last Old Testament book. He's the last prophet um, that we have in our Old Testament. And after the kind of the close of Malachi, the writing of Malachi, there's about 400 years of silence between when Malachi writes his book and when Jesus comes on the scene as we'll celebrate Thursday evening. This intertestamental period, just because we don't have biblical writings from it, does not mean God was not at work in the lives of his people as he was preparing them and the course of human history for the coming of the Messiah. But in Malachi's time, as is true throughout the prophets, God's people were struggling with full obedience. They were struggling with what full covenant faithfulness to God looked like. So let's walk through Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. I'm going to read through it, work through it just a little bit, and then I want to pull to the surface three realities about tithing that we find in Malachi and confirm throughout all of Scripture. Start with verse 6, Malachi 3. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That's comforting, right? It's like telling your children as a parent, I, your father, practice restraint. Therefore, you are not destroyed. Yesterday, I came back home from running an errand. And I pulled into our driveway, and as I got out, I saw a trash can sitting over to my right. It would be this way for you. And I looked. And there was a bag of trash that had been taken out by one of our offspring. We said, hey, take the trash out. And they did indeed take the trash out, and they placed it on the ground about a yard in front of the trash cans. I had to sit there in my vehicle and compose myself for a minute. And I thought, this is why parents go crazy. Right? This is your fault, children. The fact that we call you three or four names before we get to yours, including the dog's name and a brother or sister's name and maybe a crazy uncle, is you're breaking our brains down. Right? You're breaking our brains down. God says, I do not change. Therefore, you as my covenant people are not destroyed. That's good news. What God is saying there is that my faithfulness to you is not dependent upon your faithfulness to me. My consistency and character is not grounded in your consistency and character, but in who I am as God. God is saying, I do not change. In a sense, he's saying he's like processed fries. I don't know if any of you have ever seen those sitting around. A processed fry from a fast food restaurant can last forever. Sometime back, I was pulling up to get gas. I was thinking about that this this week, and um, he turned to the kids before I got out to, to fill the van with gas. Yes, we drive a minivan, an urban assault vehicle. And I said, children, gather up all the trash around you so that we can throw it away. And Cade, our oldest middle son, I'm still still working on verbiage there now that we've adopted. Cade, one of our sons, um, reached underneath his seat and he pulled out a small bag of McDonald's french fries. And I remember thinking, I don't remember the last time we went through a McDonald's drive-thru, but they look exactly the same 
as if we had just gone through the drive-thru. They hadn't changed at all. It's amazing what kids can find. I think one of them pulled out Jimmy Hoffa from underneath a seat. So all kinds of trash. God's saying, I am consistent. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I do not change. I do not shift. I am your covenant God. Verse 7, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Uh, that's one of two key questions right here that drive the next uh, few verses. How are we to return? But before we answer that question and see how God rolls that out uh, to us, is, is their story here not, not our story? Is it not your story that at times and seasons you tend to drift away from faithful pursuit and submission to God? And have to be reminded by his spirit and wooed by the Holy Spirit back into that place of intimacy and submission and pursuit. I think their story is our story. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And then the first of two key questions. But you ask, how are we to return? Verse 8, God answers the question with the question. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, God says. Now, he doesn't say those two phrases because they're the same. Often I hear people talk about tithing, they'll be like, man, that's an Old Testament concept. We're New Testament people. Um, yes, which means you can give immensely more. Now, it would be absolutely absurd to New Testament followers of Jesus, to understand the New Testament covenant people of Jesus giving less than the base level that God taught his covenant people to give throughout the Old Testament. And it was the beginning because they gave tithes and they gave offerings. It would terrify us to give annually back to God through the church what the people of God were typically required and expected to give throughout the Old Testament across the course of a year. Yeah, part of what he's saying here is he's saying, you're still in covenant relationship with me. I'm still your God and you're still my people, but you're not experiencing a level of blessing and of presence that I desire for you. You still belong to me. You're safe in me. Yet there's that measure of blessing that you're missing because you've strayed from biblical obedience in this area of your life. And he says the solution is to stop robbing me of what belongs to me. This is one of the reasons that Randy Alcorn in the book I mentioned earlier says that you and I have never really given anything until we've given beyond the tithe because scripture says the tithe belongs to God already. Right? So until then, we're just giving back God what God already is owed, what already belongs to him. So that's the solution. Now, let's look at the rest of this passage and now I want to point out three things about tithing very practically. Verse 9. You are under a curse. Now, don't freak out. Hold on, because we're going to work through that in a minute. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And many of you will know it's the only place in Scripture where God challenges us, commands us to test him in this. 
and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. Hear the Lord saying, I will bless you vocationally and I will take care of the sources of your provision from a human standpoint. Verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Let me start out and just simply make this observation, one of three. Tithing is a test. Tithing is a test. We see that very clearly in verse 10. Tithe literally just means tenth. That's why whatever you give to the church is not a tithe. If I'm dropping in a few bucks here and a few bucks there, that's not a tithe. It's a tip. I don't hit tithe without thoughtfully sitting down and looking at what's coming in and carving out the first ten. And God tends to do things in tens. How many commandments were there? Ten. How many virgins were there in the story of the parable that Jesus tells? Ten, yes. How many lepers were there that came and got healed? How many disciples were there? <laughs> Dang, I was hoping to get you guys. You're good. You're good. We would have gotten a lesser church. Right, 12 disciples. Two extra that were unnecessary. Um, I'm just kidding. They mirrored the tribes of the Old Testament. It's a test of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. God intends tithing to work this way. He wants to demonstrate to you as his children that you can trust him. That he is your ultimate source of provision. It's not your brilliance. It's not your education. For those of us in the South and the Midwest, it's not your work ethic. You only exercise that to the degree that God gives you health. It's God. Behind all of our provision is the goodness of God. In a sense, it's God saying, jump, I'll catch you. Jump, I'll catch you. And he's wanting to do it over and over and over and over. That's why tithing is to be a normal, regular practice in our lives so long as we're receiving any kind of income. He's constantly saying, jump and I'll catch you. And after jumping multiple times, you learn that God does indeed catch you. That he's got you. And there's a kind of confidence that you develop. Now, the context here, I'm not going to shy away from this. The context in Malachi is absolutely material blessing. I'll hear preachers get to this point and they get nervous. They're like, he may bless you in all kinds of ways. He may bless you in all kinds of ways. But what God is talking about here is indeed material blessing. There's no way to run from that. Now, I don't understand the mystery of how that works. But I do know this, that people who are biblically faithful to God will not be begging for food on the street. God takes care of his children. He does it through all kinds of different ways. He does it through individuals. He does it through jobs. He does it through the church. He does it across a plane of different ways. What I don't want you to hear is me preaching some kind of nasty prosperity gospel. This is not the prosperity gospel. Your tithing obligates God to nothing. It's not do so that God might do this. It's not do so that you'll be accepted. It's not do so that you'll be wealthy. But God's promises here and his, his challenge to test him is absolutely centered in his physical material provision 
for you. It's not the prosperity gospel. It's not the poverty gospel that says rich people bad, poor people good. Money is neutral, right? Money's ruined a lot of people. It's also built hospitals and libraries and orphanages. Money is neutral. The biblical concern is about righteousness, not wealth. So it's not the prosperity gospel. It's not the poverty gospel. It's the biblical gospel that says, remember, remember the people here, they, they already belong to God. They've already been redeemed. Not only redeemed, but rescued and re-rescued and re-rescued and re-delivered. They belong to God. It's about living day in and day out the kind of faithfulness that we're called to live so that there's transformation that takes place in us and through us. It's about learning to trust and in doing so, experiencing the freedom and joy that God intends. So let me give you a, let me give you a quick definition, a straight-up definition of what tithing is biblically. Tithing is giving back to God through your local church the first 10% of what he's blessed you with each time you're paid. Let's leave that up for a couple of minutes. Tithing is giving back to God. Remember, giving back to God what has originally come from him. Giving back to God the first 10% through your local church of what you're paid every time you are paid. And the result is your freedom and growth and God's church, like I said earlier, being fully resourced. Look back at verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe. He says, don't bring part of it. Don't be tippers. Tippers is why you're in the mess you're in. And can I just say, um, our financial lives are, 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 are one whole, right? So it's not that you simply get out of debt and save, but you don't give. And you become financially. It's all tied together. A lot of times we think, well, once we get out of debt, then we'll be biblically faithful to God. No, you won't. You absolutely will not. Getting out of debt is partly powered by being biblically faithful to God. It's all of this together. I was talking in the uh, hall this week. I, I think Tori and I were talking about this a little bit. And I said, it's like trying to say, if we say, I'm going to get out of debt, I'm going to save, I'm going to do this, but I'm, I'm not going to be faithful in my giving. Um, it's like saying, I'm going to work out consistently, I'm going to get enough sleep at night, I'm going to drink plenty of water, but I will not eat healthy. Right? It's all tied together. It's all tied together. But God says, bring the whole tithe, and he says, into the storehouse, listen to this, that there may be food in my house. God is saying, I intend that portion of what I have entrusted to you to come back into my house to resource my work to resource kingdom initiatives. Tithing is not what Sharon and I give to Compassion International to support kids. It's not what you give to this ministry or that organization. Tithing goes back to God through your local church because the local church is the front lines of God's kingdom work on earth. More good is done across more domains of life with the gospel at the center of it through the ministry of the local church than anything else you can ever give to. And the result of this test of tithing is your freedom, your joy, and the full resourcing of God's house and his ministry. Second, tithing is about learning, not earning. Tithing is a test, but tithing also is about learning, not earning. Remember, they're the people of God already. 
You trusted in Christ, you're the people. God doesn't say tithe first and I'll save you second. It's about learning, not earning. It doesn't obligate God to do anything. It's about learning to trust that what God says is true. And friends, this is, this is a small area of life where it's very easy tangibly, we'll talk about that in just a minute, to be obedient and to, to watch and experience God's faithfulness in a way that empowers us to begin trusting God in wider and larger areas of our lives. It's learning that no one thinks they're greedy and everyone thinks they're generous. This is the truth about us. None of us think we're greedy and we all think we're generous. Across all the years I've spent in ministry, 21 years now, I've never had someone come to me and talk to me and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I'm just so doggone greedy. They've come to talk to me about everything else. There's nothing that would shock me. I'm very well aware of the depth and the width of human depravity and sin. But no one's ever come and said, I just need to talk to you. Right? I just love money so much. If I could, I would, just, I would have a mattress filled with it. So that I knew at night I was sleeping on it. No one ever says that. And no matter how much money you make, you always know someone, don't you, that makes more money? So you always feel middle, middle class and frugal. It's like, well, you know, I do make good money, but, you know, compared to so-and-so, and they spend worse than I do, right? There's a reason in Luke 12 that Jesus says to be on guard against all kinds of greed. He doesn't say that about any other sin. Why, why, does, why doesn't he say that? Take, a, take adultery. Why doesn't he say be on guard against all kinds of adultery? Because it, it's easy to know when you're committed. You're not my wife. I mean, it's easy it's very clear. Greed is insidious and it sneaks into our hearts and the fabric of our lives. We get angry when people talk. We actually believe in the West that our money is our business, which is absolutely countercultural. It is. It's countercultural to Scripture. It's contrary to the teaching of Scripture and of the Gospel. Right? That's, our heart is so tied up into it no one thinks they're greedy that's why jesus said be on guard against all kinds of greed because none of us believe we're greedy i remember i flying into phoenix a couple of years ago and i was taking the shuttle for whatever reason in the large flat expanse that is phoenix it didn't occur to them to put the rental cars right next to the airport so you have to fly in and take a nasty wobbly sweaty shuttle from the airport several miles to the car rental place I remember riding over there uh, one day, and I was sitting across from a, a really, really well-dressed businessman. He may have been highly successful or maybe just highly in debt, I don't know. Um, but all of his trappings, from his hair to his polished shoes, said success, right? So we get there, we get out, the, the, the little guy is unloading this man's golf clubs, which he had flown out there for him to play golf there. And, and he pulls out his wallet which was a nice one, right? He didn't get it at Target. Um, and in front of all us all, he kind of rifles through all his uh, cash and pulls out a dollar, very ceremoniously, to give to this $10 an hour worker who's lugging baggage back and forth. But I bet if you ask that man, are you generous? He'd say, absolutely. Absolutely. None of us think we're greedy. We all think 
we're generous. It's our learning that our inclination to push back on tithing and to say we don't need it, to try to explain it away as an Old Testament thing, to find it uncomfortable to talk about in church, all reveal why God teaches us to tithe. We need to do this. We need it for our own souls. Tithing checks your heart. And tithing precedes the law anyway. Some of you will be familiar with an, uh, an interesting, enigmatic character in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, Abram, who becomes Abraham, is on the move. He's on the move. And in verse 18, we find this of Genesis 14. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. This is really bizarre because this is before the priesthood is established in Leviticus. He's a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. So who, who does Melchizedek see as having been at work primarily in Abraham's life? Abraham or God? God. Made me nervous for a minute. Yes, God. It's always a safe guess in church. God. Who, if the question is, who is it, this person or God, it's always God. Yeah, God's at work, and Melchizedek is pointing this out. Now look at Abraham's response. The end of verse 20. Then Abram gave him a tenth, the word there is literally a tithe, of everything. Of everything that Abraham had. And if you were here back at the beginning of Kingdom series, you know Abraham was a wealthy man. So we find this practice of tithing before the law is given. And Abraham gives out of gratitude, not guilt. He gives out of gratitude, not guilt. Tithing is intended not to be a source of burden, but a source of blessing in your life. Not a source of burden, but a source of blessing. We tithe and we give beyond the tithe out of faith, not out of fear. Now, I grew up, like, in the 80s and 90s, you would hear some of this kind of preaching. Car broke down, you better check your tithing. House broken into, well, you better check your tithing. Even to the point of some of the deepest human pain, struggling to get pregnant, better check your tithing. Can I just submit to you that's unbiblical thinking? That's unbiblical thinking? Those kind of statements are made by people that do not understand the Old Testament and New Testament relationship to covenant. They don't understand the gospel. Listen to what God says to us through the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, starting with verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law, you could, just, you could submit religion there, um, substitute religion. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. This is that curse language from Malachi 3. As it is written, cursed is everyone, who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. How would you like to be cursed if you have not done everything instructed to you to do consistently throughout Scripture? Am I the only one who'd be in trouble? Verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
As it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What Paul is saying here is that for Christians, the curse has gone away, but in Christ the blessing of God is here to stay. We live by faith in Him. Tithing is about learning, not earning. And just like every other area of your life, when you exercise faith in giving, which means you give slightly beyond what you're comfortable with giving, or for some of you that just means you start at that biblically faithful level of the tithe, when you do that, when you exercise faith in your giving, you grow. You grow. Tithing is a test. Tithing is about learning and earning. Last one, tithing is about trusting God and putting Him first. Tithing is about trusting God and putting Him first. God never has an issue ultimately with money or wealth. He has an, an issue with idolatry. He has an issue with idolatry. And it's amazing how much we can spend in other areas, and it's not uncomfortable, right? A couple of hundred dollars is small at the mall, but big at church, right? $500 is pretty small on Amazon or at the golf course or, or for a day of play or one of our three-day weekends that we take 16 times a year, but it's big at church. And on and on we could go. It's easy for all of us to spend in certain areas. Right? I mean, one of the issues that we know we just have culturally is the amount of money, and this is easier for me to, uh, to condemn before my kids got older, but is the amount of money we spend on our kids' sports and activities. Well, that, that, that's easy to do. Sometimes, at least a decision to make it is. But investing that kind of money into the kingdom, we go, I don't know about that. That makes me, that makes me nervous. Tithing is about trusting God and putting Him first. Putting Him first. Tithing is giving back to God through your local church the first 10% of what he's blessed you with each time you're paid. Now, because I'm often asked, and we usually stop short of this in messages, I want to get real practical here and just explain in a specific and visual way what this looks like. Let's imagine you have an annual income of $42,000. Now, for some of you, that would terrify you. For some of you, you'd be thrilled to have that, right? But imagine you've got an annual income of $42,000. If you want to think about what God's asking you to step out in faith and to give back to Him throughout the course of that year, you just drop that last zero. Just drop the last zero. And you wind up with $4,200 throughout the year. Now, let's imagine you are the average American. The average American is paid twice a month. Some of you are not. Some of you are paid weekly. Some of you are paid monthly. Some of you are paid every other week. And in case you don't know, every other week's not the same as twice a month. Do some math. You'll figure it's a difference in 24 and 26 weeks throughout the year. But let's imagine that you are the average American and you're paid twice a month. If you take that 4,200 and you divide it by 24, that means that you're going to be giving back to God through your local church, $175 each time you're paid. Does that make sense? 
I hope it does. I hope it does. Like, I'm not a math major, but I married one. Um, this is pretty simple, though. It's pretty simple. It's part of the reason I think God gave 10%, is people, even with my mind, can understand it. If he just said 8.3, I'd be in trouble. But 10%, I can figure out. This is what this looks like. If you make less or more, this is why biblical giving, faithful giving, is not about amount, it's about percentage. It's about percentage. And I'll tell you this, if you struggle to tithe when you make less, friends, you will struggle to tithe when you make more. I have people tell me that sometimes, I just don't make enough. If I made more, I would give more. Probably not. It's like fitness. If you can't lift A, you can't lift B. Learning to give based on where we are in a biblically faithful way stretches us and grows us. Our problem is not ultimately cash flow. It's about our hearts. And as I said before, with, with debt, with all kinds of different things, giving is part of the mix of the financial freedom and financial health that God intends you to walk in as his people. And we give off the top, not out of the bottom. Have any of you ever experienced how difficult it is to wait until the end of the month to give to something? Just me? Right? I mean, if you decide we're going to do everything else we need to do, and a good bit, if we're honest, of what we want to do, and then we're going to give some, you just run into month after month after month of saying that. That's why God teaches us to give off the top, not out of the bottom. Many of us could, could quote Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. But not many of us could quote Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, which says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Part of the, the, the principle of the first fruits in biblical teaching is that when you give off the top, when you give that first 10%, you're trusting, one, that you can live on the, the 90% left. Can we just be honest for a minute? That you can live on the 90% left and that God's going to keep it coming. He provides for you. I'll never forget when one of our kids, they were younger, we were talking about this process with them, teaching them to give, save, and spend. Um, and, then, and, and once they saw it, like with quarters or something, they're like, oh, this is all God's asking for out of this? And I get all of this? I was like, what a perfect way to see it. Not the way we see it as adults. But to a kid, the biblical concept of tithing was like extravagantly generous on God's part. Like, he gives me air all day, and this is all? This, these are the training wheels of giving? The biblical teaching on money as a whole, and you will hear me say this over and over across the years, the, the biblical teaching on money, when taken as a whole, teaches us to give first, save second, and live off the rest. Give first, save second, and live off the rest. Because giving first honors God. Saving second creates margin in our lives where we can help people at times that we couldn't otherwise do. And living off the rest develops contentment in us. We give first, we save second, and we live off the rest. That's what it looks like practically, and this is how you practically do it. Now, let me tell you what this message is and is about. This message 
is about your freedom and growth in Christ and his fully resourced church here. This is not about, we've actually had a good giving year. You guys have been very, very faithful, all right? But as with many churches, or not a but, and yet, as with many churches, there are so many of us in here who struggle to be biblically faithful. And I want to challenge you to do so. And just tell you hi. You know, most of you know that you can go online to lmbc.us and give. You can go in there and give. And if you're salaried, this is the most beautiful, simple way to give. To just set it up recurring. That's how mine is set up. So when I get paid, bam, it comes right out back to God through my local church. You can set it up. You can give off and own as you please, or you can set it up recurring at dates and times of your choosing and adjust it. You can give by text. That number is on our website underneath the giving section. Giving by text is simple, secure, and fun. You get that immediate, oh, thank you for your giving. You get an email confirmation. And I've, I've had questions about this in the past too. It's not, I don't know what this is about, but it's not figured into your phone bill, right? When you go to give by text, you put in the source that you want to give, whether it's a, a, a checking account number and routing number or a debit card, whatever. You put that in, you set up the frequency, same way. You can give by check. Like, if that's how you roll, more power to you. If you like writing that physical check every month, write it. In January, God willing, uh, we'll begin utilizing programs and connection cards again, giving envelopes, the actual physical offering. We're working on some details around that now. Many of you mail in. Some of you watching online are some of those faithful givers we have. Some of you actually call Donna each week <laughs> to give using your card and have her put that in there. You can give in all kinds of ways. Throughout 2021, too, we'll, be giving, we'll begin giving quarterly statements. So those will go out each quarter. So you can see what you've given up to that point. And you can hear some of what God's doing in and throughout the life of our church. Now let me close with a couple of challenges. If, if you're in here or you're watching online and you know, maybe at some point in the past you, you were giving at a biblical faith, biblically faithful level, you were tithing and you were conscientious and committed to that and you've fallen away, or maybe you've never been committed to that and you, you're hearing God challenge you this morning to step that up. I want to challenge you to take a four-month tithe challenge. A four-month tithe challenge. Go ahead. It, would everybody do this? Uh, whether you're not, you're going to use it. It makes it comfortable for everybody. Would you pull out your phones? Pull out your phones. I've got all morning. I'm paid to be here. So pull, pull out your phones, will you? If you know God's moving in your heart and you want to take this challenge, we're going to follow up with you. We're going to send you a packet. I'm going to be praying for you daily as you're walking in financial faithfulness with God and seeing him move in your life. I'm going to be praying for what he's going to be doing in your heart through that time. But we want to correspond and encourage and challenge you and support you throughout that journey. So if that's where you are now, and if you're watching online, you'll see it pop up in the chat stream there. You can push that button or maybe across the top of your screen. But you can text TITHE to this number. Text TITHE to this number. It doesn't matter whether it's all caps or lower cap. Just text TITHE to this number, and we'll follow up with you. And I'm telling you, you will watch God work in your life. First thing you'll do about two weeks in is have a flat tire or something like that. Just expect that, right? Expect some kind of little challenge in the beginning. That always happens. Push through there. 
That's why we'll be praying for you. But I'm excited to see some of you begin to step up and to give faithfully at a level that you've never given before and start slapping on those training wheels of giving and beginning to, to honor God. And there's no better time than now. I love it that we're at the end of the year where everybody's crunched and most people are overspending and some people are even going into debt to buy presents, some of uh, which are for people they don't really like anyway. It's no better time than to hear God say, I want to set you free. I don't need your cash. But I want to do a work in your heart. Now, if you're a biblically faithful giver, if you know tithing is old school to you, this is where Sharon and I were a couple of years ago. We've been tithing all of our marriage. It took no faith. It took no, no trust. It was just part. And we realized we have to step that up a little. We have to uh, begin giving some beyond that. Here's what I would want to challenge many of you to do who are already biblical tithers. Would you commit to take a 1% challenge through 2021. What, what you're committing to do is to increase your giving by 1%. By 1% throughout this next year. As we prepare for all that God wants to do in and through us as a church. You can take that challenge and we'll have this stuff on the website. and You'll find it throughout this week for those who weren't able to be here. But I don't want to miss out on this. A 1% challenge. If you're married, it's good to talk to your spouse before you do this. If you're in here, just whisper, hey, you good, baby? They probably won't say no. I'm just kidding. You can wait till you get home if you need to. I want to challenge all of us, wherever we are, to take a next step. To take a next step and watch what God does in your life as you follow him in faithfulness in this area. Let's stand and pray.